This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. In this episode, we look back over the first 11 chapters of Genesis and work to understand their significance to the greater narrative of the scriptures. Uh, just a heads up for everyone listening, there is a presentation that goes along with this episode, episode 7. Uh, so if you are listening at home, we hope you just open that right up. If you are out walking about, we really appreciate that you are taking the time you could listen to any of a million other podcasts and you choose to listen to ours. So to uh, show our respects to you, I'm going to try to describe what Marty is looking at uh, to enhance your experience. But if you get a chance, please take a look at the PDF. So Marty, let's get started. All right. Yeah. So uh, no news stories in this brief episode, but I wanted to take a, a moment to kind of look back over these first 11 chapters um, and and try to understand what it is that we're trying to do in this class and where we're headed and and maybe if uh, we're right at all about any of these hunches, if I'm right at all about any of my hunches, um, to try to talk about what the authors of Genesis are doing um, with what they're they're writing out here. So first slide here in our presentation, uh, just wanted to kind of lay out the way I see the narrative. Um, if God's story, if the scriptures were, the, were a large story, um, really the body of the narrative and the body of the story sits in between Exodus and Revelation. Uh, starting in Exodus, going all the way to the end of the scriptures, you have the narrative of God. And we'll talk about this a lot more in a lot more detail uh, later. But the book of Genesis is kind of all the prep work to this narrative. Now, Genesis 1 through 11 ends up being what I like to call the preface uh, to that story. If, um, uh, if you're reading a brand new fantasy series, uh, oftentimes you're going to run into some kind of a preface because what you're doing is you're entering into a world that is different than the one that you understand. And so the author has to take you into this narrative and and introduce not just characters, but the author has to introduce brand new concepts. He has to tell you about this world and your parameters of, of, of your understanding are going to change. And, and so that's what happens in the preface. And then oftentimes these series might even have an introduction. This is where you're going to get introduced to the, the characters. It's going to set up the plot of the narrative. Uh, that's where your setup's going to happen. That's where the stage is going to be set. Um, but, but that's going to be where you get introduced to some of those characters. You're going to see that in Genesis 12 through 50. But I believe if you look at the scriptures, even in the, even in the English, it's really obvious uh, in the Hebrew. But if you look at it in the English even, I believe you can tell that you're seeing a different genre of literature when you go from Genesis 1 through 11 and then you leap into the story of Abraham. The whole genre of literature changes. And so what Genesis 1 through 11 is doing is taking, as we've seen in our other podcasts up to this point, Genesis 1 through 11 is taking stories that they're incredibly familiar with, folklore, folk stories, and the author or the authors are changing, subverting these stories, tweaking these stories, adjusting these stories in such a way that it completely changes your, your fundamental understanding of the world. These are, these are creation myths. These are um, the stories of, of ancient stories of the flood. The, this is where you base your understanding of the world. And the author uh, here is, is subverting all those stories and inviting you to reframe to reframe what you think about the world. Uh, you thought the world was this way, but in Genesis 1 through 11, I'm inviting you to see the world a whole new 
way. And so we're just about ready to leave this preface and get into the introduction. We're just about ready to go from Genesis 11 and start stepping into Genesis 12 and the story of Avram, uh, or Avraham, or Abraham, as we uh, like to call it. But before we do, I wanted to look back and try to really get a grasp of what the author was trying to accomplish uh, when they wrote this. So uh, I'm going to jump into our diagram that we have here to try to uh, explain what it is that we're looking at. But if we were to go through the stories, um, we'd map out probably eight different sections here of Genesis 1 through 11. First of all, you've got Genesis 1 uh, and the story of creation. Um, next story would be Genesis 2 and 3, and that would be the story of Adam and Eve. Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. The next section is a genealogy that sits in Genesis 5 and kind of outside that, but Genesis 5 ends up being this genealogy. Then you go to Genesis 6 through 9a, essentially the first part of 9. That would be Noah's Ark. Uh, a couple podcasts ago, we looked at uh, Noah's curse in Genesis 9b in chapter 10. And then the first little bit of Genesis 11 was the Tower of Babel, and that's going to be followed by another genealogy in the last half of Genesis 11. So we end up having these eight stories. And so on this diagram here, we've got these eight columns and we want to walk through uh, these stories as we see them and see if we see anything emerge. So the first story I'd look at would be Genesis 1. And uh, if we just kind of walk through this, uh, we'll deal with each column kind of on its own. Genesis 1, one of the things that we noticed was that Genesis 1 had problems. There was all kinds of problems in Genesis 1. Uh, we talked about how Genesis 1 was a chiasm. Uh, we talked about how Genesis 1 was about a good creation. Uh, we talked about how Genesis 1 was about a God who knew when to stop. Genesis 1 was about a God who knew when to stop creating. And essentially this story is about rest. Know how to stop. Know how to enter God's rest. That led us into story number two, Genesis 2 and 3, Adam and Eve. And again, we had problems with the story. Again, we had uh, a chiasm on our hands. We found out with the nakedness. And instead of a story of a good creation, this time we had a tragedy that ensued. The tragedy ensued because they didn't know how to stop. And instead of know how, knowing how to stop, they became obsessed with their own creativity, in a sense, you could say. They became obsessed with trying to possess more and acquire more. Uh, however you would want to phrase that, instead of knowing when to stop, uh, they became obsessed with their desire. And then instead of finding a place of rest, uh, they demonstrated mistrust of the story. Instead of trusting God's story of Genesis 1, they mistrusted it. Which leads us into the third story, Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And again, we had problems. We had problems in the story that led us into the deeper levels of that story. And while we didn't talk about it on the podcast, we did deal with it in discussion groups about how Cain and Abel is yet another chiasm. Uh, we talked about, obviously, it's a tragedy. So just like Adam and Eve, and there are many parallels connecting the Cain and Abel. We looked at some of them, uh, Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve. But one of those larger concepts is instead of it being a, a good story about a good creation, it's a tragedy. And again, because instead of knowing how to stop, uh, they become obsessed. Uh, Cain becomes obsessed with acquiring more, having more, doing more. Uh, he sees Abel as a threat to his own creativity. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of parallels here. And so again, this is a story not about rest, but a story about mistrust. 
So then we have a genealogy. And then our next story, Noah's Ark and the flood. And again, we're seeing a pattern. We have problems in the story that lead us into the deeper layers of the story. Again, we're going to see a chiasm, which is what Kevin, who was with us that day, helped us find. Um, And then we're going to see God's reaffirmation of the goodness of creation. So it's going to be another story about the goodness of creation, another story where God says, this is a good creation and I want to save it. Unlike the gods of Gilgamesh, unlike the gods of the stories that they're familiar with, this God comes to Noah and wants to save creation by partnering with him to do that. So it's God's affirmation of a good creation. And he knows when to stop. This is another story where God knows when to stop. Just like Genesis 1, God knows when to stop destroying. The first time he knew when to stop creating, this time he knows when to stop destroying. And the story ends with uh, finding rest. No more will man have to worry about the destruction of God. No more. So there's this, there's this place of rest. Leading us into Noah's curse. And again, we had problems. Uh, why does Ham get cursed? Or why does Ham not get cursed? Why does Canaan get cursed? Um, all kinds of problems in that story. Uh, and this is the chiasm I'm probably the least familiar with, but it's in there. You can find the concepts. I just haven't nailed down the details on this one, but the chiasm's there. Um, and instead of having a, a good story about a good creation, we have another story of tragedy because Noah is obsessed with destruction. Instead of knowing when to stop destroying, uh, Noah wants to take out his vengeance on Ham's children. And so, of course, it's a story about mistrust. Leading us finally to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11a, where we have problems. We had another chiasm, this time built off of the Hebrew consonants of the story. Uh, We have a tragedy that ensues with the people being scattered all over the earth uh, because of their obsession with making a name for themselves. Very, very reminiscent of the story of Cain and Abel. And obviously a story of mistrust and Genesis 11b being another genealogy. Now, I don't know if you're looking at this, Brent, if you happen to, I don't know, do you see anything going on here? Well, we've got these eight columns. The fourth and eighth columns are genealogies. And Correct. those suckers stick out like a sore thumb on this, sure little, do. this little graph. Yeah. Then in the other six columns, you have across the board, you have problems and you have chiasms. And then in the first and fourth, no, first and fifth, you have uh, a good creation, a good element of the story. You have someone who knows when to stop, in this case, God. Uh, And then you have a creation that finds rest at the end. And then in the the other four columns, instead of the goodness and the knowing when to stop and the rest, you have tragedy and obsession and mistrust. And so you're pointing out a whole bunch of patterns here, if I understand you correctly. There's patterns coming out our ears. All right. So many patterns. So when you see patterns, if we've uh, caught on to anything by this point, what kind of things do you ask? It seems like there's got to be a chiasm. Here. seems like we got a chiasm. I mean, we already know we got chiasms in every one of these stories. <laughs> Wouldn't it be weird if we had a chiasm made up of chiasms? Like all these chiasms forming a larger chiasm. Like my head starts to explode. I can tell you this. When I first started teaching Bema, uh five, uh, yeah, just over five years ago um, with college students, I, didn't even, I wasn't even aware of this. I was aware of all the small chiasms. And I was trying to draw the... I was putting this similar diagram on a whiteboard, and I was trying to explain to my first few students, there was only two or three 
at WSU at Washington State University at this point. Uh, one of their one of my students' names is, his name was Paris Paris Shui, and uh, and and I'm putting it up on this board, and I'm trying to explain some of the patterns. And Paris says, "Oh, so you're saying Genesis one through eleven is chiastic?" And I was like, "No, Paris, are you not paying attention? I'm telling you, all the small stories are chiastic." And somewhere in the middle of that sentence, where I'm just like so frustrated, like, "Oh man, do you just not get it?" Like it clicks, and I turn around and look at the board, and I'm like. Oh my goodness, it's chiastic. Because what you have, and I, I'm going to go to the next slide on our presentation here, all of these stories are calling back to their representative. Story five calls back to story one, six calls back to two, seven calls back to three, and eight calls back to four. It's very reminiscent of Genesis 1 and the creation narrative. So if I were to go to the next slide, you're going to see the A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D nature, where a lot of the chiasms we've been seeing have been A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. Uh, This is the flip chiasm. This is not an inverted parallelism. This is a chiastic parallelism. Um, but there's definitely a chiasm here without a doubt. And I, I was even frustrated. I didn't see that before Paris pointed it out to me. And so once we've like clear, and this is, this one's really fun to see because it's just right in front of us. But if we've got a chiasm, what is the next question that you want to know, Brent? What is the center of it? What's the center of it? And this is what I was doing when Paris mentioned it this day, I immediately started thinking in my head, like, well, what is the verse going to be at the center of the chiasm? So when I went there, if you oh, go to this, the... is, this is great because this is what the rabbis live for. This is uh. what they're trying to do for all of their students is bring them to this point of discovery. And in this case, it was flipped around and the student brought the rabbi to the point of discovery. But ooh, brilliant. I, I would have loved to be in the room. Brilliant. It was fantastic because that was exactly what it was. And I realized what the center verse of the chiasm was going to be. And so we pulled it out, and here it is, Genesis 5, 28 through 29. It's on the next slide there of your presentation. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the grounds the Lord has cursed. He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the grounds the Lord has cursed. And in the center of that verse the name of Noah. And, and so Noah, actually, if you go to the next slide in our presentation, the name Noah means he rests, which is just brilliant. Because this whole story started off with a story about Shabbat. The whole thing, Genesis 1, was a story about resting in the goodness of creation. And here in the center of the chiasm, that is Genesis 1 through 11, that is the preface, sits a verse about a man whose name means he rests, and it's the same man that's going to save all of creation. There is this really definite hint in in the preface that if you're willing to trust the story, if you're willing to be somebody that can find that place of rest, and not become obsessed with your own creativity, obsessed with your own fears, obsessed with your own insecurities, obsessed with the threats of broken relationships and the people around you. And if you can learn how to be like God and to stop and know when to say enough, if you can know when to stop creating, if you can know when to stop destroying, well, God's going to be able to use you to save all creation. He's going to be able to use you to put the story back together. You're going to be this great partner for him. And I just loved that, that, uh, 
that that part of the preface. But so when we look back over this whole thing, we realize this. Just a few observations I would make on the next few slides here. On the next slide, uh, the story is good. We've said that a bunch of times, but now looking at this diagram and understanding the preface as a whole package, uh, hopefully it becomes even more crystal clear. The author or authors here of Genesis, however you want to look at it, are pretty adamant here, pretty adamant that uh, the story is good and we can trust it. In fact, it's going to be essential to moving creation forward. It's going to be essential to the redemption and the restoration of creation. If we're not going to trust, we're going to pull the world further apart. If we're going to live in fear and insecurity and let those things rule the day, uh, the world's going to fall apart. It's going to end in tragedy every single time. But if we can find a place of rest by trusting in the things that God tells us is true, uh, we're going to be onto something. So I think it's really important before we move on to Avram to pause and to look back and go, I think the Bible, I think God is serious about this message. I think the authors are serious about this message. Uh, God knows when to say enough and we can follow in his footsteps. Um, And we've seen what happens when we don't. Uh, I would also say this um, on the next slide, the brilliant design of the scriptures, the brilliant design of the scriptures. Like when you look at this stuff, there is no human being that could have done this on their own. Um, uh, to quote a joke from Rob Bell, it's almost as if people had help. <laughs> it's almost as if these authors weren't working on their own power alone, because how do you, how do you do this on your own? I, I'm not sure how you do. Um, and, and for many scholars, they've suggested that there are multiple authors uh, in Torah. I'm not going to come down and tell you what you got to believe there, or, or, but it's definitely the, the prevalent idea. Um, it's the one that, as I've looked at that, I, I think there's definitely some credence there. I see multiple authors at work in Genesis. I think Moses is one that probably gave the teaching. I'll give him all the credit. I'll give him all the traditional authority. Um, but we probably have multiple authors at work as far as writing down the story. And, and here's the thing about that. If there are multiple authors to Genesis, this is even more impressive. This is more impressive because it all fits together like this. You can't have multiple authors work on this project and put this thing together like this. This is unbelievable. Um, so I just become really, really impressed with the fingerprints of God that are all over, uh, the text here. Um, and then just a closing thought as we kind of close out this discussion here, uh, you are being invited to reframe your understanding of reality. Uh, the audience of Genesis thousands of years ago was being invited to reframe what they thought was most true about the world. I believe for each and every one of us as readers of the scriptures, Uh, the invitation is extended to us as well. Uh, We are being invited to reframe what we think is most fundamentally true about the world we live in. What is the world like? Who is God? Who are we? How does God feel about his creation? I think our knee-jerk responses have um, have to be questioned here. They have to be put on the stand and tried because there's, uh, there's something going on here that I think uh, changes the way we understand the world, and it definitely changes the way we read the scriptures. So anyway, that's the preface. Sounds very good. It's quite a foundation that we are uh, building on here. Yeah, I, I love, love Genesis 1 through 11. It really sets the stage for us to to look at the rest of the scripture in a whole new way. And I think we've I think we've gotten used to just reading the scripture. I think we know what we're what we're looking for when we go into the text. I think we oh yeah the story of Abraham I know what that's all about. And what the preface does is it says no you don't. <laughs> right. 
we're going to ask a whole other set of questions because of what we believe is fundamentally true about the world when we meet Abraham. So anyway, that's what I like. Well, and you talk about the brilliant design of the scriptures, whether uh, Genesis is working with multiple authors or not. The entire scriptures are certainly multiple authors. And yet you see the thread of this story throughout the entire Bible. Right. Yep. So this is going to be through the entire narrative arc. We've got a lot of ground to cover, but this is a great place to start. Absolutely. Essential. So if you live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. You can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.